1209. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, as Eric just mentioned. Two weeks from today, two weeks from today, Insight 2018. Just an absolutely tremendous lineup. I was just in a meeting talking about all the stuff going on. Uh, we're going to have the U.S. Senate candidates. Um, we're going to have in person Kevin Nicholson. And we'll also have Leah Vukmir. She is going to be on video. Matter of fact, there was something in the paper about there's some you know going back and forth between the campaigns. What's going to happen is earlier that day, State Senator Vukmir is going to come into WTMJ. We are going to um, tape a uh, relatively lengthy interview with her. I'll be asking her questions, and then we're going to replay that. Kevin Nicholson will be there in person, so you're going to have a chance to see both U.S. Senate candidates who are seeking the Republican uh, nomination to challenge Tammy Baldwin. They will be there. Extensive interview with Governor Walker, and these are no-holds-barred type of things, and it's a chance to see this in an intimate setting. Got a lot of questions for Attorney General Brad Schimmel, who has been at the tip of the spear on a number of interesting issues over the course of the last couple of years, and he is running for re-election as well. Kathleen O'Leary from the Wisconsin State Fair. We're going to have Congressman Glenn Grothman, who will be there. All sorts of other stuff as well. State Supreme Court just candidate Michael Skranek. The state Supreme Court election is the following Tuesday. So actually three weeks from yesterday, you're going to want to uh, check that out. It is an important race. And my guess is it's not on a lot of people's radar screens yet. If it's not, it should be. All those folks and a lot more at Insight 2018. Tickets are available. WTMJ.com. They're only 25 bucks a piece. And we're going to have a great time. Hope to see you in the audience. And then we rebroadcast. Actually, because the Brewers opening day, the Brewers open up in San Diego two weeks from tomorrow. Um, we only have a two-hour show that day, so we're going to replay some of Insight from noon until 2 before the Brewers opening day coverage and then replay a number of the other interviews the following Friday. So you want to see it, be there, come out and say hi. I'm looking forward to it. $25. Tickets on sale now at WTMJ.com. Do not get shut out. All right. We start off today's program. And let me give you a couple. By the way, let me just give you a little bit of roadmap. Um, as we speak, uh, Milwaukee County is announcing that it is joining a, a lawsuit against opioid manufacturers. Um, there have been other similar lawsuits filed, but Milwaukee is the biggest county in Wisconsin getting involved in this. Um, a little bit after 2 o'clock, we're going to be joined in the studio by the lead counsel for that lawsuit to talk a little bit about what it means for the taxpayers, what it means for you know efforts to try to stop opioid abuse. So that's going to be extremely interesting. Stick around for that. We start off today's show like we start off every show, three big things. Today was the day of the National School Walkout, and you had students for all across the country who at approximately 10 o'clock their time walked out of classes to stage various protests. I, I happened to be coming into work um, right around 10 o'clock, and so I got off the freeway, was driving past Mesmer High School on Capitol Drive there, and I, I would say I saw about three dozen students standing on the median strip of Capitol Drive which struck me as not the best way to stage a, a protest. I mean, you could have been doing it on the sidewalk in front of the school, but they were actually in the median strip. 
uh, between traffic, but I haven't seen any reports of anybody getting hurt, so I guess all's well that ends well. But you had all these kids that were staging this walkout, and you're going to see a lot of coverage of this as, as you watch television or listen to the radio over the course of the rest of the, the, rest of the afternoon and into the evening and, and tomorrow. All these different kids saying, okay, we're tired of gun violence, and, and we want... We want some form of meaningful gun control. We've been playing clips of, you know, some kid that's interviewed saying, well, I, I don't feel safe in schools. And look, there's been these different shootings and things like that. And, I, and obviously, any time there is a school shooting, it is a huge tragedy. And I think it frustrates a lot of people that this type of thing can, in fact, occur. The one question, though, that I, I, I don't hear being put to these kids in any degree of detail, is what is it that you want to have done? I mean, I, I hear th- these conversations about, all right, we, we need we need more gun control. Uh, okay, and, and that that's all well and good. But then there's not a lot of times that follow-up. All right, what, what specifically do you want to see happen? Do you want to see the Second Amendment repealed? Do you want to see private ownership of firearms outlawed? Do you want to ban AR-15 and similar sort of, of rifles? And if you want to ban them, do you want to ban them just moving forward, the sale of them moving forward, or do you want to confiscate the, the 6 to 8 million that are in private hands now? What is it that you want done that you believe would stop what happened in Parkland a month ago or what happened in Columbine or Sandy Hook, right? And that's where I want to start our discussion. 414-799-1620, that is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's take on the issue of gun control because, for example, after the shooting in Las Vegas, I, I thought, you know, it, this it would be very reasonable. I could understand how... For example, we could ban the sale of these, you know, bump stocks, these things that take a weapon and for $35 turn it into an automatic weapon, which is illegal. Okay, I I get that. To me, that's something reasonable and it's something that I think, you know, reasonable people should be able to agree on. But but beyond that, what what when you hear people talk about the need for gun control, what does that mean and would it work? Should we ban the sale of AR-15 rifles? I mean, is that the solution to this? Should we confiscate the AR-15 rifles that are in people's hands? Should we ban, I don't know, the, the large magazines? that it would, would that change anything? What do you think we should do, if anything, to make schools safer and to make the streets safer? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Ted in Bensonville. Ted, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Ted. So, Jeff, my opinion, hi. my opinion is these children, they don't need to have any concrete uh, 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 you know, resolution. The fact that they're showing how they feel about it is enough. They're children. They're saying, you adults, stop with your, you know, your locks. Conservative views, Jeff. Okay, okay, tell me. All right, tell me what when you when you talk. Let's talk to you. When you talk about gun control, what do you want to see happen? Tell me what you want. I want to see. All right. First of all, I think uh, 
I want to see every every gun owner who's who's willing to stand up for guns. I, I want to see their physical condition. You know, uh, you know, I think everybody needs to be in the physical condition. Should there be some kind of catastrophe? I'm 59 years old, and I try to keep myself in shape. And I tell my boys this: you wouldn't believe the reason, Jeff. Because in case there is some kind of a catastrophe, when I look around at the people, they are so out of shape that I picture myself literally like a superhero endeavoring to carry people to safety because they will not be able to handle it themselves. Okay, so no, I want, let me stop. So you, you want anybody who's a gun owner to what have to pass a, a physical exam like the, the president's physical Correct. fitness test? They have, to, they have to show that they're man enough to handle themselves without a gun to have a gun. Let's put it that way. I'm not. I'm not sure what what does that what does that mean. I mean, push ups and pull ups and running and show your man enough that you don't need you don't actually need the gun. You know, like no. your body's a weapon, but the gun is an extra thing. Show me that. So give before you can own, you think before you can own a gun, you have to be able to like get into a boxing ring and mix it up with somebody. Not a bad idea. Not a bad. That's one way of looking at it. Yeah, to show that uh, you know that the gun that you're in shape that you can help society. You're not just going to look to shoot off guns. You know, sit there like a big blob on your porch and shoot off. Okay, would you apply that to, like, the deer hunters out there? Anybody like that? Everybody. Even the city guy. You know, they're, they're, they're worse. The deer hunters at least use the guns for something. I'll give you guys that. The city guys who are always talking about pro-guns in any form, and then they can't even, you know, get out of their car. It's hilarious. You know, so let's not rip on the kid. Oh, well, thanks a lot. That's... Well, no, Ted, you've, you've given me something else to rip on. I, I, I will say that. Okay. My, my point is, what, what, what do you want to do? I mean, this idea, when I hear this, this notion, we want gun control. All right. Tell me what it is that you want. Now, Ted, I give you credit. You think that every firearm owner should have to pass a physical exam. And in your phrase, prove your man enough to care before you can carry a gun, you need to prove that you are man enough or woman enough, presumably, so that you don't need the gun, whatever the hell that means. I'm not quite sure I understand. All right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. I want to have I want to have a candid conversation because that's what I would like to see. What when you say we want gun control, what do you want? What is it that you are advocating for? And if the concern is we want to stop school violence, I'm all in favor of that. Believe me. Tell me what the magic bullet, no pun intended, is. We pick it up right there in just a moment. It's 1219. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1222, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, massive protests. All these high school kids walking out saying, we want gun control. And I will tell you, I've been wrestling this for 25 years. What what do you mean when you say gun control? And it'll be interesting because when you watch the TV and the radio accounts of this and the newspaper accounts, you, you don't hear a lot of follow-up about that. What are exactly are you talking about? Are you talking about confiscating guns? Are you talking about banning the sale of certain types of firearms? What exactly do you mean when you say that? And then that's fine. Then let's discuss whether if you got your way – would that have prevented, for example, what happened in Parkland? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with, let's not start, we had Ted first. Jason in Big Band. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Hi, Jeff. I, I do think they were specific in certain cases. I was watching the news the other night, and they did ask the kids what they wanted, and I think it was a group from Pennsylvania said that they said they would like uh, assault rifles banned. They think that would make a big difference. That'd be a good start 
to get things done. And, and in reality, they, they surveyed a bunch of, a ton of gun owners and most people, most gun owners are open to some regulation on that. But the fact is the NRA isn't. Well, I, let's, let's, let's break that down. When, when you say a, a ban on assault rifles, are you talking about a ban on, for example, the sale of AR-15 weapons, firearms? Would that be what talking, you mean? Yeah, they were talking about a ban on the sale of, of oh, Okay, weapons. what do you do, and let, let's do, work with me on this one. Um, the numbers are that there's somewhere between 6 to 8 million AR-15 style weapons of that style, firearms of that style, in private hands now. What would you do for those 6 to 8 million? That's a great question because yeah. <laughs> if you say that you're gonna you're gonna confiscate those right. and everybody comes screaming, oh my gosh, you know, Obama's gonna take your guns away yep. and and the sales of guns go through the roof and everything else. I don't really know how you could go about doing that, but most people are reasonable. There was a guy the other day that said he owns one. He says, you know what, for the good of society, I'm gonna get rid of it. And I think it all goes down to people being selfish. They want no restrictions. They want guns at their hands. They don't want any restrictions. They don't want any rules. They want guns at all times with no rules. And I think a lot of that comes from the special interest groups and the NRA. I don't really think a lot of reasonable, responsible gun owners really feel there's a need for AR-15s, for 30-round clips. For Well, I mean, but I mean, of course, but it, you – all right, you – Let's take the AR-15, and and again, like I say, my understanding is there's about 8 million that are in circulation. That in in the, and I'm not diminishing when you have these mass shootings, I'm not diminishing the significance, but but what do you have? 5, 10, 15 out of, you know, 8 million owned. Um, Statistically, it's insignificant. Now, I understand it's a significant occurrence and things like that. Doesn't that mean that the vast majority of the people that own these firearms, the 7.99999 million, are, in fact, the responsible firearms owners who aren't misusing that gun? I think you have to start somewhere, Jeff. I mean, what's the next thing? And right. I, I'm not being unreasonable on this. How about if we start selling hand grenades? Well, I, well, I don't I think... Mean, really. Well, no, I mean, th- I see. I'm, well, you can't legally sell hand grenades. Just like you, you can't if you want to own a a machine gun, you have to go through all sorts of registration things. So, I mean, I I don't think reasonable gun owners. I'm not sure there's too many people who really believe that there shouldn't be any restrictions a- at all. My point is, when we talk about these gun control issues, all right, tell me what you're going to do that's going to stop. You know th- th- this this carnage, and it's going to stop this sort of situation. And if you say, okay, we want to take the AR-15s out of we we want them out of society, we want them gone. Well, okay, then you 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 ban the sale, but all right, you've got eight million that are already on the street. If the problem you think is that particular type of firearm, you need to figure out a way to get that firearm out of society. And does that mean we're going to go door to door and demand that people give up their guns? No, I, I to answer your question, do I think we should start allowing people to own hand grenades? Of course not. 414-799-1620. We continue the conversation in just a moment. What does gun control mean? And this is the broader conversation I want to have. It's 1227. Jeff Wagner. 1229, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let's talk to Christian in Sheboygan. Christian, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Very well, thank you, sir. What? Okay, 
when we talk about gun control, what should we do? Well, um, I think uh, a very easy first step uh, that anybody that's reasonable can agree on, I think, uh, would be universal background checks. Right. By uni- just so everybody... By universal background checks, the way the law works right now is is uh, gun gun sales. People who are, are licensed gun dealers have to run a background check. That accounts right. for about 80% of the firearm sales in this country. But if you're a private seller and you're, you're selling a firearm to somebody else through Craigslist or whatever, or you go to a gun show to sell stuff and you're not a licensed dealer, you don't have to sell. And that's about 20% of the gun sales in the country. Okay, so you'd be in favor of universal background checks. Absolutely. Make, make private sellers work through, through a licensed dealer, or, uh, however, however that has to work logistically. I think, yeah, it's only 20%, but we've already said that these events are statistically insignificant. So, you know, we're dealing, we're dealing with, with the with the fuzzy edges of people who slipping through the background checks anyway, so we've got to make that universal. Do you think um, that would have stopped any of the, for example, the, the shooting in Las Vegas or the school shooting in in Parkland? Because all these people would have would have passed background checks, and in some cases did pass background checks. Uh, yeah, and I'm not saying I'm certainly not saying that it's it's going to solve all of them, and it may not have solved any of the ones in the past, but. Who's to say what future future circumstances are going to be, and to say well that wouldn't have stopped anything, even though it's got potential of stopping something? I, I think is irresponsible. Okay, no thanks for um, calling. All right, let's start. Sorry, I want to take a break for the news because we're going to continue this for one more segment. But I mean, universal background checks. Now, I, I I want to tell you, I this is one, and I I understand I part ways with some firearms advocates on this. I really don't have a problem with universal background checks either. Like I say, this. Um, I don't think it's that onerous to, to, you know, have that done. But having said that, I don't think that there's, you know, in, in the cases of, of the vast majority of the shootings that we have had, especially the mass shootings, people would have passed background checks and in many cases did in fact pass background checks. So while I don't have a problem with universal background checks, I, I think for anybody who thinks that this is going to stop this kind of carnage, that that's that's not likely. But I don't have a problem with it. Twelve thirty-six, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Bob Uecker, back on your radio. The Cactus League is underway, and you can check out the crew's entire spring training schedule broadcast. Uh, broadcast schedule in the Brewers section of WTMJ.com. You can also text the word Brewers to four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to Randy in Milwaukee. Randy, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. All right. When, when we hear, I mean, all these kids are walking out. They say they want gun control. Um, what what does that mean? What what is there that we could do that would stop another Parkland? I don't think there's a whole lot of anything. It's 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 very difficult to to try and explain because you get a lot of the, the newer generation people they're buying guns for home control, yet they don't teach their children anything about the weapons at all. Mm-hmm. And then you got the older generation of people. Like me, when I grew up, I mean, I'm 50, almost 52 years old. I grew up with guns my whole life, but I was taught at a young age about the respect of a weapon. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, from my father, and his father taught his father, you know, and it's just, you know, and it's that whole generation there. Nowadays, you got people buying guns for home control. They don't put gun locks on them. Yep. They put them in a dresser drawer. They keep them loaded. 
I mean, I have guns for at my home for gun for home control, but they're not loaded and they have gun locks on yeah. them. Well, and also, I mean, l- let's talk about what the real problem is. If you're looking at these school shootings, it's that you know you have you have psychopaths that are out there who are are right now. Even though there's all these different warning signs, I mean, let's look at the guy at, at, who did the shooting in Parkland. You know, I mean, there was there were people calling up the FBI, calling up the sheriff's department, saying essentially, "This guy is a psycho. He is going to do something," and and nobody did anything to stop that. And I guess that's sort of the frustration that I have. I mean, when when law enforcement, when the community gets all these different tips, when the cops are told you need to investigate this guy, well, I think you need to investigate the guy. So now is it actually gun control or is it actually the people the people that we're calling that are supposed to police the well, action that we're telling them about. Well, right. I mean, thanks. See, and that, that's it. Is it gun control? Is it crime control? Look, I here, here's an example where I am Tom Barrett and I disagree about a lot of stuff, but you know, I I do think, for example, I think you commit a crime with a firearm, you need to go to jail, and there needs to be mandatory minimum penalties. I think if you catch felons in possession with guns, people who aren't legally allowed to have firearms, yes, then you need to send those people back to prison. I mean, I I think that's where you start with this type of stuff, and, and the reality of it is, not in all cases. It's tough to generalize, but when we have these mass shootings, almost always you're able to go back and everybody says, well, yeah, I mean, this, we, we could tell this was this, you know, frustrated loner who had in many cases, you know, made threats or acted in this irresponsible way. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, that's it. Look at the Parkland thing. Where, where was the FBI? You know, where were the Broward County Sheriff's Department? You know, when you've got people calling up saying, all right, this is the guy's name. He's talking about, you know, killing other people and you just blow that off. I, I think at that point in time, well, the, the question is, again, unless we're going to make firearms disappear from society, that the question becomes, all right, here you had somebody that was clearly intent on acting out in a deadly and antisocial fashion. Let's, Let's get that person off the street. That's, I think, maybe a starting point. And again, I'm not one of these guys who doesn't think you can have reasonable you know, gun control measures. We talked about universal background checks. I don't know that that would have stopped any of the mass shootings. But, yeah, okay, if you're going to sell a gun at a gun show, I, all right, a background check, I don't think that's the end of the world. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to... Um, Let's see. Let's go to uh, uh, Jason in Green Bay. Jason, you're WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How Hi. are you? Very well, thank you. What do you think about all this? Well, I think there's a couple things you just touched on, and what I what I told your screener was more about. I think one. Your your question is, what do we do? I think one, we have to actually enforce what's in place. One, whether it's like you said, criminal, or whether it comes to to the background and the actual process of buying a gun, I think those things have to actually be executed upon. And two, as a gun owner, as a pretty independent but, you know, conservative-leading political person, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying we got to change assault weapons. And I think, to me, what, what seems like an easy solution is why don't we create permitting, just like you said, for handguns or these other things, and it's a process. And maybe there's a 60-day waiting period for these things. So, one, you put systems in place that check people's backgrounds out, and maybe that process is more 
interrogating, so to speak. There's more, um, you know, personality and mental assessment in that process. And, oh, by the way, you charge a significant amount of money that then doesn't require some sort of confiscation, but it says, hey, if you're owning AR-15s and assault weapons, maybe it's a $1,000 fee every five years. And, again, I would think that builds infrastructure. It creates jobs. It, it, capitalism can do its thing with some private companies providing sort of those, those safety nets. So I think there's some simple things that everybody likes to make this way more complicated. I think the reality is when it comes to these shootings, it's more of a symptom of our poor mental health care system, and that's the real issue yeah. for, for those things. But when it comes to gun control, I think there can be some things put in place that not only create infrastructure and jobs, but are common sense to say you can have these things, it, you know, like driving a car, like driving a truck. There's different levels of permitting and mm-hmm. fees that go along with it to make sure that you at least are not allowing Easy access to it. Would you, would you extend, would you extend that, would you extend that to handguns? For example, um, many people, um, don't have revolvers. They, they have the other type of handguns where you have a clip that you put in. So it's not like you put like the six bullets in the thing and it revolves. You know, you, you have the pistols. Um, those pistols, you know, can have clips that have 10 shots in them. I mean, I own a handgun. I think it's got, I think it's a nine shot clip and one in the chamber. Um, so you could fire 10 shots as quickly as you could pull the trigger. Would you impose the same sort of things on those type of handguns? No, to me, to me, there's, that's the debate, right? You have to figure out what's that safety. But I think for most handgun users, if you're going through a concealed carry, you're going through that process, maybe there is a step in there. But to me, it's really about, what does the most damage? Absolutely, you cannot prevent everything. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you put some of these things in place, somebody can go buy a shotgun and do the same thing. But I think what, what it comes down to is the mass devastation is done when you have 15, 20, 30-round clips, and you see it with already with some of the concealed carry. I'm a concealed carry. You go through a process, mm-hmm. and you pay for those things, and you, you earn that right if you show that. But I think, you know, ultimately, there becomes a distinction between home protection gun use, recreational use, and you know what? If you're a doomsday prepper and you want to have five AR-15s, great. But now maybe there's a cost and a process to have that um, that I think is reasonable, just like you wouldn't unleash a 16-year-old with a driver's license on a Ferrari in common sense. You've got to have, I think, some basic things in place that create a better system and, frankly, do the do what's supposed to be doing done as far as Maybe some background checks and personality tests. Okay, th- thanks for call. And and see, and I, I appreciate it. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to devote some time to having this particular discussion. I, I come back though to where I started with, and and it's when you watch the news tonight and you read the newspaper accounts of it, uh, all these people that are protesting. And I understand the kids are well intentioned, things like that. And that's that's not whether whether or not they should have walked out of school is a whole different story. But but this is the ongoing debate. When when we hear gun control, what do we mean? Do we mean background checks? Do we mean banning certain types of firearms? If we're going to ban certain types of firearms, does that mean we're going to confiscate the firearms that are already in people's hands? Where, where do, what exactly are we talking about? And then I would be curious to see how that ties back. I mean, I keep coming back to this Parkland shooting, horrible shooting, 
horrible shooting, awful situation. But to me, I don't know that it was the firearm. You you had here a clear indication that you had a psychopath, somebody who was dangerously mentally ill, showed all the different signs, and we did not get him off the street. Law enforcement failed. The laws failed. People, you know, we say, you know, see something, say something. People said something. And we didn't, we being like the law enforcement community, didn't get this guy off the street. Maybe, maybe that's where you start. Just saying. It's 1246. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1249, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Just heard that ad for Leah Vukmir. Um, Leah and I will be sitting down for an extensive interview on the morning of um, March 28th, which is the morning of Insight. We're going to replay that um, for the audience at Insight. Um, in addition, Kevin Nicholson, who is challenging Leah Vukmir for the Republican nomination, he's going to be there in person. So that's Insight 2018 at the Country Springs Hotel. Tickets on sale now at WTMJ.com. Hope to see you there. All right. Big story number two, and it ties in with this upcoming election. Um, I know, I know I've done this, you know, 23 years now, full or part time. And, and I understand on days after elections, like what happened in Pennsylvania yesterday. And let's just recap the bidding. You had a Republican congressman who resigned in disgrace after um, reports that he had an affair and father to child and all that type of stuff. So it was a special election to fill this seat. Um, the seat was a very, very Republican district. President Trump carried this district in Pennsylvania by around 20 points in 2016. You had a strong, compelling Republican candidate, former military guy. You had a strong Democratic candidate, former federal prosecutor, military guy as well. But this is a very, very red district, meaning very, very Republican. Like I say, President Trump won it by 20 points two years, a year and a half ago. Yesterday, it appears the Democrat won. Um, the, the margin is very close. It's like 600 votes, but it appears the Democrat won. Regardless of whether the Democrat won or not, what you saw was a district that a year and a half ago had voted for President Trump by 20 points that now went to a Democrat or even if somehow the absentee ballots come in and the Republican candidate ends up winning, he'll have he'll have won by a mark. That's a 20 point spread in the space of um, a year and a half. Now, I understand what some of you want me to say. You want me to say, don't worry. There's nothing to be concerned about. This is no big deal. The Democrat was a great candidate, and so that did something here. You had, um, it doesn't make that much difference because Pennsylvania is going through a court-ordered redistricting, and whoever won yesterday was probably only going to be serving in that district till November anyhow, and it's going to be a completely different district, and it's not going to make that much difference, blah 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 I know you want me to say that. But you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. This is a big deal. And I'm tired of the phrase wake up call. You know, we, we heard the story when you had the Wisconsin Senate district that um, switched from a Republican to a Democrat. That was the phrase everybody's using. It, it was a wake up call. You know, um, there are people out there and you know who you are that are in complete and total denial that 2018 is shaping up to be a wave election. 
And I have been doing this long enough to know what a wave election looks like. I've seen it when the liberals were on the rising wave, like they appear to be now. I've seen it when the conservatives are on the rising wave. And and unless people change their thinking dramatically, you are going to see, I think, a massive electoral wave in 2018 that will perhaps sweep the Republicans out of control of the U.S. Senate, perhaps sweep the Republicans out of control of the House of Representatives, and create untold damage in various states, including maybe Wisconsin. And and that's why we need to change our thinking. First of all, and this is what some people don't want to hear, President Trump is not a help right now. I understand that there are some people who just absolutely love President Trump, but the Trump style, let's forget substance, the Trump style is off-putting in the extreme, and there's a lot of Republican-leaning voters that are turned off by this. Meanwhile, you have Democrat voters who are energized. They are the ones this time around that are willing to run through brick walls to cast votes against anybody that has an R in front of their name, not because they necessarily don't like that person, but because they cannot stand President Trump and they're looking to, they can't vote against Donald Trump, but they can vote against any Republican. And you are starting to see that play out. You can try to spin certain elections, like the Roy Moore election in Alabama. You know, Republicans lost that seat. Well, Roy Moore was a deeply flawed candidate. That's what happens when you nominate kooks. But beyond that, this was not what happened in Pennsylvania. So, I mean, here here's the bottom line. First of all, and look, I have no no illusions that at the age of 72, President Trump is going to change his ways. He He is what he is. But if I were to give advice to any Republican running, it would be you've got to you've got to argue. You got to run on your own merits and you have to try to explain to the voters why you are not Donald Trump. And I mean that. I mean, maybe you can agree with the Trump policies, but you hitch your wagon to President Trump this year as a Republican. And again, I know you don't want to hear this. I get it. Oh, there, there you are. Go work for MSNBC. Okay, I'm, I'm just trying to give you a reality here. This, the reason this loss happened yesterday wasn't a fault of the candidate. It wasn't a fault of the electorate. It was, we are looking at a wave election because a lot of Republicans are turned off to what's going on in Washington and the Trump style. Democrats are energized, and it is shaping up to be a bad year. Now, the good news is it's only March, you know, and people have time to figure out what's going on here. But if you keep doing the same old, same old, it's not going to work. And President Trump needs to understand that the style that he, the style, as opposed to the substance. There's a lot of substance and a lot of things that you can be proud of. There's a lot of accomplishments, but that's not what's going through. That's not what's getting out there. It is the style that is influencing, in my opinion, voters. And that's why Republican candidates need to recognize that, and voters need to recognize that. And maybe the other thing that you're starting to see is that Trump voters 
were not necessarily Republican voters. Um, you saw that in some respects with Barack Obama. Obama outperformed Democratic candidates, and now this is perhaps playing out on, on the other side. But if you want to use the phrase wake-up call, okay, it's a wake-up call, but this is a big deal. What happened yesterday is, I think, a predictor. It could very well be the ghost of Christmas future, and Republican politicians, whether it's people like Scott Walker, whether it's people like Kevin Nicholson and Leah Vukmir, anybody who's going to be on a ballot this fall needs to recognize it's an issue and they need to start doing something with it. Coming up in less than eight minutes, they made her put the dog in an overhead bin. Stick around. It's 1257. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 109, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. All right, big story number three. I had to delay this one for a little bit because when I saw it, it was so appalling. I felt my blood pressure rising. I've got this like monster headache. Which is, I had to break down and take some Advil. This story does not help my headache. So, but here's the or a leave or whatever, whatever. My friend Lynn was was kind enough to give it to me. All right, here, here's the deal. And if you are a regular listener of this program, you you understand. I I talk occasionally about you know my family I want to share those type of things you know radio is a very personal medium it's a one-on-one type of thing and I just made the decision when I started doing a radio show you know 20 plus years ago that I mean I was going to share things that go on in my life and I, I think as, as many of you know I am a huge dog lover I have a um, I have a little dog a Pomeranian her name is Sasha five plus pounds and um, she's going to be three in May and she was one of the joys of my life I have not she hasn't flown yet, and I admit I'm a little bit apprehensive about, I mean, the reality is at some point in time, we're going to have to take her on a plane because, you know, we're going to be going places for a long enough period of time that we're going to want to take her with us. But she has not flown yet. But I, you hear, you know, you hear these horror stories about people who, you know, try to beat the system and, you know, bring on their pets, claiming that they're emotional security pets to try to avoid paying things. And, and I, I wouldn't do that, but I am also, I, I'm afraid that, you know, taking her on a plane would be a bit of a traumatic thing. On United Airlines, United Airlines has a rule that small dogs are allowed to fly in the cabin. And here's the deal. If the trap, if if the pet is small enough to fit in either a hard-sided or soft-sided kennel, you can bring the pet, your pet, in your dog into the cabin. And that means it's got to be like a hard-side case or a soft-side case that's big enough, that's small enough to fit under the seat in front of you. And with United Airlines, you pay a $125 fee and you can have the dog with you. Okay, I have I have both a hard-sided uh, case and I have a soft-sided kennel. My dog is small enough. I, I could have her under my seat if I paid the 125 bucks. All right, so so here's the deal. What happens is on, on Monday, there is a three-hour flight. It's from Houston to New York City on United Airlines. There's a, a woman who gets on to the plane. She's got a puppy with her. The puppy is a black French bulldog that is traveling in a pet carrier that is small enough to fit under the seat. In addition, the woman has two small children with her, including uh, like an infant, right? So 
Can you imagine? It says, lady, she's got the dog and a carrier. She's got two small kids. One of the kids is an infant. So they get to the seat, and the flight attendant comes by and says, all right, the dog, don't put it under the seat. Put it in the overhead bin. The overhead bin. And the, the woman apparently says, no, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to put it under the seat. And um, the attendant says, no, don't put the dog under the seat. Put it in the overhead bin. Um, there's other passengers who are apparently watching this go on, and, and they're, they're concerned about this, but they're assuming, well, okay, this flight attendant must know what she's talking about because who you know, there must be ventilation or something in this overhead bin. Everything must be okay. So ultimately, the woman is told, if you don't put the dog in the overhead bin, you're not going to be allowed to get on the plane. You're not going to be able to fly with us. So here you have a deal where, you know, she's got two children, including one that's an infant. You know, you've got all this chaos that is breaking out and the flight attendant saying, put the dog in the overhead bin. She puts the dog in the overhead bin. And closes it. Well, okay, the overhead bins are not ventilated at all. Um, apparently, the dog cries or whimpers a little bit on takeoff, maybe barks a couple times. And then then as the flight goes on, the, the dog is quiet. The woman does not check the dog at any point in time during the three-and-a-half-hour flight or the three-hour flight. When the flight lands, they go to retrieve it. The dog is dead, and the dog has suffocated in this case in in the bin. And then, you know, all you know what ends up, you know, breaking loose. The, you know, the mother is trying to, the mom, the woman's trying to resuscitate it. Um, the, the, the people on the plane are just completely freaked out who have watched this happen. For its part... United Airlines says, this is, I've got their statement here, they say it was a tragic accident that should have never occurred as pets should never be placed in an overhead bin. We assume full responsibility for our tragedy, for this tragedy, and express our deepest condolences to the family and are committed to supporting them. All right. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I guess I've got a couple comments, and I want to get your reaction to the story. First of all, the flight attendant that directed this woman to put the dog in the overhead bin should be fired. She should, at least in my opinion, never, ever, ever be allowed to be a flight attendant on any plane again. This is incredibly irresponsible. Secondly, and I, I, I hate to go down this route, but I have to tell you, um, I guess it, maybe it's easy for me to say, because I'm not sitting on that airplane having to go from Houston to New York um, with two small children in tow, but if somebody told me to put my little puppy, put my little dog in an overhead bin, um, there, I, was get, I would be getting off that plane. I would be making a stink, and I would probably be one of the people that you would see getting arrested for creating an issue on an airplane because there's no way in God's green earth that I would be putting my dog in an overhead bin, period. And I guess, and this is another thing that I'm hesitant to say, but one of the things I don't understand is is how you cannot 
check on the dog during the course of the the three and a half hour flight. I mean, I and I understand you got a lot of stuff going on. You got the kids and all those type of things. But if I had to put my dog in an overhead bin, as soon as that plane got up to cruising altitude, I'd be opening up that bin and making sure that she was okay. So I think there's a lot. I hate to say blame because it starts and to an extent it ends with the United Airlines flight attendant who demanded that this woman put the dog in the overhead bin. But at the same time, from the perspective of the pet owner, and I I hate to pick on her because she's the one that suffered the tragedy, I I do find myself thinking, how could you not check on the dog that's in the overhead bin um, for three hours? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. United Airlines says they're going to assume responsibility, which is wonderful. It doesn't bring the dog back, though. The flight attendant needs to be fired on the spot. I do think there's some blame to go around here, though. 414-799-1620. How would you, how do you think you would react in a situation you're traveling with your family pet? You are told, nope, put the dog in the overhead bin. I will say this. I think my answer would be that is not happening in this lifetime. And, you know, I want to talk to a supervisor. It's just not happening. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. It's If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 117. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 120, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I mean, what idiot, seriously, you know, tells somebody, hey, take your small dog and put the dog up into the overhead bin that isn't ventilated at all for a three-hour flight, and that is precisely what somebody, a flight attendant for United Airlines, did. Now, the the, the woman, she did it, which is something that I don't think I would have done, and I, I don't mean to be too harsh on her because she's traveling with two small kids, and I'm sure she's got a, just a world of stuff going on, and obviously she trusted the flight attendant and screwed up. She apparently didn't check on the dog for three hours, which is, I, I mean, mind-blowing to me. I... And maybe it's just me, and maybe I'm an overprotective dad. But I mean, I around my house, you know, if if I don't see where the dog is for a little while, I go looking to find make sure she's okay and hasn't gotten into any trouble. But at the very least, you know, United Airlines says it accepts responsibility. That's fine. Um, there's probably going to be a heck of a lawsuit, and there should be. But this flight attendant's just gotta go. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's start with Debbie in Hartland. Debbie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, how are you? Well, this upsets me, this story. It goes right through me. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, my daughter has a Frenchie, and she actually uh, uses the dog when she flies as a companion. Uh-huh. Uh, United Airlines specifically had um, made her get a paperwork filled out with a doctor's signature and everything, and um, they still gave her trouble getting the dog on the plane. Number huh. one. Number two, I called in because we were just sick about it. We still just thinking about it. Oh, yeah. Stomach wrenches. I feel like growing up and I never throw up. Well, I mean, I'm just uh, trying to pick. I'm picturing my little five pound, one ounce dog, you know, who I, who yeah. does, you know, we put, yeah. you know, we put, I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I just, I would not, I, but I got to tell you, Debbie, if, if some flight attendant had told me to do that, I would have told him. No, no, it's not right. going to happen. All right, bring on the air marshals, and then you would have seen right. the story about WTMJ talk show host hauled off in right. handcuffs with his dog. That's what we all say. That's what we all say that our dog owners. So I'm wondering if uh, number one, the flight attendant was not a dog owner. Number two, the the woman that might have been their first dog if she had young kids. But I think the woman had a hundred percent trust in this 
flight attendant, and she was probably also a rule follower, so she was going to do what they said. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Well, right, that's and she's got two little kids, including right. one that's an infant, and she's just like, I just, I just want to get home or get wherever I'm going. Right. I'm not going right. to get in a but, fight on an airplane. Yeah. But she 100% trusted United Airlines, and. They anybody knows there's zero air in those overhead compartments. They jam everything in there. Yeah. Uh, now well, I bought my daughter's Frenchie for her in Mesa, Arizona, and brought it back to Wisconsin when it was five pounds in a doggy little cart uh, on Southwest Airlines. And absolutely everybody around me was just enthralled by the dog. Everybody was engaged in the dog, including the flight attendants. It was fine. I didn't have to pay for the dog. Mm-hmm. I, uh, the dog sat right under my seat and right on my lap, and he cried a little bit, but he was a baby, you know, sure. and he was not eight months old. An eight-month-old Frenchie is probably 12 pounds or 15, you know, so that's, that's one, no air. Two, they're confining the dog to one position. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. The dog's crying. Can't you ask the flight attendant, like, we hear the dog crying, like, we... That's not right. Somebody else around her could have said that's not right. There were there was a guy that was listed as hearing the dog crying. Yeah, oh, I, I, it just I, I guess in the, yeah. No, thanks for calling, Debbie. And I guess I mean look, I, I I don't mean to put too much blame on this this lady because she was just following instructions. But I I, I will say the other thing that struck me is she she didn't check on the dog during the course of the three hour flight, and I that's that's kind of mind blowing to me too because as I said a minute ago. If I don't hear, if I if I don't know where my dog is, it's not going to be three hours if I'm home. Now I understand there's times we leave her home for longer than three hours, and I get that. But I'm saying that if if I had if I had my dog in an well, if the dog would not have, never have gotten into that overhead bin. Period. I guess that's it. But I, I would have certainly you know checked on her as well. Let's talk to um, Tom in Hartford. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Right. Uh, Hi, Tom. Yeah, I just would say um, I, I agree that both parties are at fault. But first, first of all, I, would, I believe that the airline is at fault because they made that recommendation and they yeah. should know if there's violation. And insisted on it. Apparently, it wasn't just a recommendation. It was here. No, you've got to put you've got to put this dog in the overhead bin. Right. You're right. The order. Okay. But yeah. yeah. And then I guess with that, um, what I have to say is if with the dog suffocating, um, but with checking and, and then even agreeing to it um yeah i've flown many times on business and on pleasure and there are there are no ventilation holes there's no air in it you close it at locks yeah. tight and um but as far as checking on if you see in relation to um at a certain time period what this relates to is death by suffocation um people are murdered with suffocation with duct tape or with um with a bag put over their heads or whatever it happens and Obviously, it doesn't take a very long time if somebody doesn't have air or an animal oh. doesn't have any air at all to die. Oh. So, what if she, as far as checking out during the flight, the, the dog, you're saying first it barked and whimpered, and then there was no noise. It probably was dead within, I don't know, three minutes. I mean, someone could look on the air and if there's no air. If there was some air, then it still probably would have survived for some time. Yeah. And I, I get wasn't any air. So, probably checking out even after 15 minutes, it probably was dead after oh. uh. five minutes already. Yeah, no, thank you. You could be right. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the reports are it barked a little on takeoff, and then it kind of whimpered a little, and then I didn't hear anything of it. I didn't, right, it might have been too late. I just, I, I will tell you, it, it's stories like this that just kind of go through you. And again, I, 
I, I understand that people want to follow instructions. And I'm generally speaking, I'm one of these guys that say, right, flight attendants and pilots and these people in airlines, they've got a tough job and you want to obey what they say. But this was so staggeringly stupid to tell somebody to put their their pet, you know, in an overhead bin. This is one of those times where I think the entire plane stands up to the flight attendant. Like I say, I think this if this I guarantee you if this had been me, the story later on that day would have been for be- better or worse, WTMJ talk show host arrested for creating a disturbance on the plane because I- I'll take the bad press and I'll take the handcuffs, but you're not putting my dog in an overhead bin. 127 Jeff Wagner WTMJ when we come back. All right, consequences for policies. Will it break bad on Dick's Sporting Goods? Stick around. 135, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The U.S. Embassy has issued a travel ban for some all-inclusive resorts in Mexico. What you should know before you plan your next trip. Tune in, 721 a.m. tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News with Gene Miller. All right. Um, February 28th, Dick's Sporting Goods, which is, of course, one of the, the nation's largest sporting good retailers announced that in response to the Parkland shootings, what they were going to do is they were no longer going to sell in their stores any of the semi-automatic assault-style rifles, like the AR-15 type of rifles. Even though it was legal to sell, they were not going to sell them anymore. In addition, they were going to raise the age that we could buy firearms from 18 until 21. Um, as a matter of fact, out in Oregon, as we talked about last week, they're getting sued by somebody who says this is age discrimination. But, but Dick said this is going to be their policy. Walmart and Kroger followed suit shortly afterwards. All right. Now, th- that that portion of their business has never been a big portion of their business. Um, most people who buy those types of firearms don't buy them from a Walmart, don't buy them from a Dick Sporting Goods. So it's from the perspective of your bottom line sales. It's not like, well, okay, for example, a couple of years ago, um, CVS pharmacies announced they were going to stop selling cigarettes. Cigarettes was a high profit margin for a number of these pharmacies. Um, and so that was, that was a big deal that had the, you know, very real impact of, you know, taking away from their, their bottom line as far as actual sales. So this was more candidly symbolic than anything else. Cause like I say, if you're going to buy an AR-15, you're probably not buying it at Dick's Sporting Goods or at Walmart. But nevertheless, they wanted to make a statement. And the CEO of Dick says, well, it's, it's no longer just enough to say thoughts and prayers. Here's what we're going to do. So they're, they're saying that, well, we got a lot of, of positive feedback from, from this. However, we've also gotten some negative pushback. And what they're starting to say now is, you know, we are afraid that, you know, our sales are going to decline as a result of of this policy because people who would buy the semi-automatic assault-style rifles, the AR-15s and the like, um, they also buy other things as well. Or I think what they're really saying is that there might be some firearms owners who even if they wouldn't buy the AR-15-style firearms from us, they, they do buy all sorts of other things, and we're afraid that they're going to go other places. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I actually 
think that they are on to something. I, I think that there is going to be a consequence for this. Now, that's not saying that they didn't do the right thing, and this isn't an argument about how do they have a right to do it. Sure, they, they have a right to decide what they're going to sell and what they're not going to sell. But I do think there is going to be a net blowback. Now, maybe there's going to be some people who say, you know what, I'm going to start shopping at Dick's because I appreciate what it is that they, they have done. Or um, other people who say, you know, I used to shop at Dick's, and now I'm going to shop there more because I appreciate what they're going to do. I actually think that this CEO is on to something. I think that the most likely thing that's going to happen is you have people who don't agree with this policy who are going to say, well, even if I didn't want to buy a gun at Dick's, well, um, now I'm not going to go there for my basketballs or for the golf balls or whatever else I might buy. All right, 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The Again, the CEO is saying, well... You know, uh, we don't know exactly how this is going to work out, but based on initial reactions, even though we've gotten a lot of support, we're afraid this policy will hurt the bottom line. And you know what? I think he is absolutely right. I think it will. Jake in Caledonia. Jake, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jake. It's funny. Just yesterday, my wife asked me where we should get my daughter's stocking feet from. I said, I will not go to Dick's. I said, go over to Shield Sporting Goods. Really? Yep. That was just yesterday morning. Um, huh. Uh, I mean, I mean, why is it just you feel that strongly about their policy? Yeah, I, I think I think it's more political than anything else, and I, I don't agree with their policy, so I don't want to support them. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of people. I think there's a lot of people that are out there that exactly feel the the same way and you know it's, it's kind of like hey there's all sorts of different places you can go to buy golf clubs or baseball bats or gloves or whatever and even if you wouldn't buy a gun there you just don't want to give in to what at least some people perceive as being politically correct i agree and i shopped at dick's quite a bit if you, you know in the past ah. but uh, not anymore interesting well, thanks for calling that's what the ceo is saying is happening and i and again this, this isn't a question of you know th- does dick's have the right to do it dick's this, this lawsuit about, you know, are they discriminating against 18-year-olds notwithstanding, Dick certainly has a right to make his policy. And they can say, okay, we're not going to carry these firearms. Um, that's a decision they make. But I think they have to recognize there's going to be consequences. And I think I do agree with the CEO. My my sense is it's going to hurt them. Doug in McGuanago. Doug, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Hi, Doug. Um, I think that, uh, you know, they, they could have chosen to no longer sell ar 15 but done it quietly. They chose to make a big publicity-laced announcement that they of what they were going to do right after this happened. Uh, and the problem is, along with the good publicity, you're going to get negative feedback, and they're, they're going to have to pay for that. Uh, they probably should have, from a business standpoint, just chose no longer to sell them. When the ones they had are gone, no longer replenish their stock, and we're, you know, if anybody came in and said, hey, we're the AR-15s, uh, we just decided to get out of that business, but done it quietly. But right. instead, they wanted to make a big, you know, it was on the top of all the news, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods is no longer, you know, going to carry uh, assault-style weapons. And, you know, I think they thought they were going to get more positive publicity than negative. Uh, are, you are know, you- I mean, if they feel that they're doing a socially conscious thing, uh, that's fine. But the, from a business standpoint, it was a poor decision. 
Are you surprised that there's a backlash? No. No, no not at all. No. I mean, the people who, I mean, I'm a, a gun owner. Uh, I stopped belonging to the NRA because I don't like, uh, it's kind of getting like a Scientology with that LaPierre guy. He's been there too long. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I just, uh, I, I know that there are some people out there who are hardcore gun people. And uh, that, that's going to really turn them off. So rather than going in, getting their box of shells and maybe buying their kid's shotgun or whatever, or sporting goods, they're going to go someplace. They'll go to Farm and Fleet or Fleet Farm. Yeah. Well, and, and thanks. And see, and I, I think, you know, you make a really interesting point. They could have done this quietly, but they decided that they wanted to, they, they wanted to get the adoring press of this. They wanted to take a side in this issue. They wanted to make a statement, and that's that's part of the problem that you run into when you decide to make a statement that might run against, I don't know, the, the core values. When you decide you want to be political and you make this political statement that might, might run against the core values of at least a good chunk of your audience. Uh, here's Don in Milwaukee, Texas. I won't set foot in a Dick's Sporting Goods again. In fact, I haven't been an NRA member for five years now. But today I am um, rejoining. Huh. Huh. Um, you know, interesting. That's, again, it's one of the problems that businesses have. And I'm not arguing that Dix doesn't have a right to do what it did. I am saying, though, that they shouldn't be surprised that there is a consequence. And now they're starting to pay the price for it. All right. When we come back, there is one legislator in the state who is trying to solve a problem, or at least start to solve a problem. He's not getting too much help. I'm going to tell you about that and then give you my suggestion as to what really needs to be done. Stick around. It's 144. This is Jeff Wagner. 147, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You've been hearing this on the news. Uh, Milwaukee County announced that it was filing a lawsuit against various opioid manufacturers. We're going to be joined by the Milwaukee County Corporation Council um, right after the top of the hour news, so stick around for that. All right, I'm on my soapbox today, so let me continue to jump on there. Today's TMJ4 had a report yesterday that that it it underscores something that I have talked about before. Um, In Wisconsin, there is a law that says... In order to drive an automobile, you have to have certain levels of insurance. The levels are ridiculously low, but you have to have at least some insurance. And that is so if you drive in a reckless fashion and you hit someone, you at least are in some financial position to take care of the injuries that you have caused. Um, I had a, a professor in law school who always used to say, you can sue anybody and, and you can win, but if you can't collect, it doesn't matter. Just put the judgment up on, on the wall. Um, and that's why a lot of times in lawsuits, you, you wonder, well, why did this person get brought in or why did that corporation get brought in? And it's because maybe the person who was the, the real bad actor, they don't have any money. They don't have a pot to you know what in. And so you're looking for somebody else who might be able to pay. In any event, in Wisconsin, there is a law that says that you have to have liability insurance. Really low limits, but you have to have it. The penalty for not having insurance, 500 bucks. 500 bucks, which is hardly a deterrent. In any event, on today's TMJ4 yesterday, um, you know, they, they focused on somebody who'd been hit by an uninsured motorist and um, was talking about how they ended up with, you know, $20,000 in, in bills 
you know, damages to their car and medical expenses and all that. And then it focused on State Representative Joe Sanfilippo, who's one of the good guys, you know, and, and he, for the last two legislative sessions, has been trying to get a bill passed which would strengthen the existing law requiring drivers to have automobile insurance. He wants steeper fines for drivers caught without insurance, and he wants to force them to prove they're covered before their driving privileges are reinstated. You know, he says that this law is just, it's, you know, $500. There's no penalty at all to that with that. And by the way, I I agree to an extent with Representative Joe Sanfilippo. But here's what really needs to be happen, happen. And if you've ever dealt with being hit by an uninsured motorist, you know how difficult this is. Now, first of all, there are things that you can do to protect yourself. I am not an insurance agent. And I don't play one on the radio. But um, liability insurance protects you if you're at fault. Uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage protects you if you are the victim. You get hit by some Yahoo who causes all sorts of injuries to you, damage to your car, um, and they don't either don't have insurance, uninsured motorist, or underinsured, they don't have enough. That's coverage that you can buy to protect yourself. And I always, you know, again, I, I don't play an insurance agent on the radio, but that's, I think, always, that should be a key part, is protecting yourself. Obviously, you want to protect yourself from being sued if you're at fault, but you also want to do things to protect yourself if you're not at fault. So that's a key component. The other thing that I would do if I were the king is I wouldn't be fooling around with $500 fines or things of the like. If we want to get serious about this, we need to recognize that driving is a privilege. It is not a right. And if people are going to drive without insurance or without, yeah, without insurance, um, what we need to do is we need to start taking those cars. If, if you're involved in, I think any time, yeah, I'm going to be broad enough to say this. Any time you catch somebody who is driving without insurance, I think at that point in time, the car gets impounded. Boom. You take the car. The person has to figure out how they're going to get home. The car gets towed to an impound lot. And the only, the only way that person, the driver, the owner, whoever, gets it out of that impound lot is if they are able to go down and they are able to show proof of insurance. See, and I don't care if this is a speeding violation. I don't care if it's an illegal left turn violation. If you don't have insurance on that car, the car should be seized on the spot. You should be given a reasonable period of time to prove that you have insurance. And after that, boom, I think the government should forfeit the car. All right, 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We've just got a couple of minutes before the talk, top of the hour, but my guess is maybe you or maybe somebody you know has been involved in one of these situations where you've been hit, you've been injured by somebody and they don't have insurance or, you know, and then you've had to just go through this entire rigmarole and you've been victimized twice. Now, I understand there's not a lot you can do to necessarily stop this, but if we wanted to get serious about it, 
Forget about the $500 fine. Forget about a $1,000 fine. Let's start taking cars, impounding the cars. Whenever you stop somebody, whenever somebody gets busted for driving and they do not have sufficient insurance or they don't have insurance, take the car. Keep the car until they can prove that. And by the way, I mean, I I understand that sometimes that means that people are going to be without a car. It might mean that if you loan your car to your, well, to your, you know, buddy, your, you know, drunken brother-in-law or something like that, um, it could be an issue. But you got to have insurance on the car. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Jim, who's calling us from around Miller Park. Jim, good afternoon. Hey, how you doing today? Hi, Jim. Hey, I was rear-ended about, oh, three years ago, and uh, officers came, uh, did not give the person a ticket for not having insurance. Also, they didn't get a ticket for rear-ending me. And (laughs) then I went to the first precinct. I was a little upset. And uh, they said, we don't have to give tickets if we don't want to. So I paid the deductible, $500, and, uh, well, then the insurance company paid the rest. Right. Right. Yeah. So you were out of that. You were out. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they didn't even give this person a ticket. And they said, we don't have to. (sighs) Now, a lot of insurance companies, like you see these ads on TV, they'll give insurance to you for one month. That's all you have to produce when you go to the DMV to get your license back. Because I was pretty upset about that. I looked into all this stuff. You only have to have it for one month and you get your license back. Right. Yeah. Well. Right. And then. And right. Thanks for going. That's why. Right. No. Right, Jim. And so that's why if you're going to go after this, you've got to go after the car. Um. You know. That's the key to this. And okay, I have one of these texts here. So if I forget to put my updated insurance card in the glove compartment, they should confiscate my vehicle. Are you serious? Yeah. Well, then. Then what you have to do is figure out a way to prove that you have that insurance. Yeah. Apps. Absolutely, I am serious about that. Now, maybe those companies can have a hotline that they can call, but this isn't the problem. This guy, oh, how dare they take the car? Well, all right, if you've ever been victimized by this, by all the people that are out there driving around who are creating problems, yeah. I mean, the rule is, you just like you have to have your driver's license, if you want to modify that and say, well, all right, you know, we'll, we'll give you six hours to prove you have it, but then the people are going to disappear. No, I don't think we, if you don't have the insurance and you don't have proof of insurance, yes, your car should be seized until you can demonstrate that you have it. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. And that will, I think, perhaps stop you from doing some of this stuff. Just saying, because right now, a $500 fine, I would say it's a joke, but it doesn't even rise to the level of being a joke. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about this opioid lawsuit. Stick around. It's 157. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Again, so very glad to have you with us. As Belinda was just saying, it's two weeks. Insight 2018. We've got a great lineup. Um, 
starting with Governor Walker, and we're going to spend some time talking to him about a number of different things, past, present, and future, where he sees the direction of the state. And it's in a, it's in a what I would describe as an intimate setting. You know, a number of people that you're going to see there, you hear on the radio or you see on TV, or maybe you've you know seen them at big rallies and stuff. One of the great things about Insight is the in the room we do this at the Country Springs Hotel. Um, it's a, a very, very I, I'm describing it's sort of an intimate setting. It's always a lot of fun, and we always tend to make a bunch of news there. Um, this year, doors open at five thirty. I've been saying six, but actually, doors open at five thirty. The show starts at six thirty. We'll be done by nine o'clock or so. Um, tickets are twenty five dollars, and they are available right now. If you go to wtmj.com, you'll see a big icon that says uh, Jeff Wagner's Insight 2018. You can click on it. In addition, I can make it even easier if you text me the word Insight, I-N-S-I-G-H-T, to 414-799-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, we'll send you the link to make it easy for you to get tickets. And like I say, ticket sales have been robust, and um, we want to make sure everybody that wants to go gets a chance to get in. So you can text me the word INSIGHT, once again, I-N-S-I-G-H-T, to 414-799-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. By the way, um, INSIGHT 2018 is presented by our friends at Annex Wealth Management. I always appreciate that quite a bit. I mentioned this on the air yesterday. Um, and, and it's really, it's starting to play out. And I know this is the, the first part of this. My lead in is I know, as I said about an hour and a half ago, it's something that people don't want to hear. I, I mean, I understand there's conservatives, there's Republicans that look at all these different election results where you have special elections in heavily Republican areas and the Republicans either win by a, a whisker or lose, like the Alabama Senate race, uh, the Roy Moore race, or what happened last night in Pennsylvania, where you have a, a heavily, an overwhelming Republican seat that apparently switched to a Democrat, um, a, a seat, a county, a district that uh, President Trump won by 20 points that now apparently has gone Democrat. Again, a very, very close race, but it shows a 20-point swing in the better part of like 13 months. Now, some people say, oh, there's nothing to worry about here, no problem, nothing to see, don't panic, I'm not worried at all, to which my response would be, well, you need to kind of wake up, and you do, in fact, need to be worried, at least worried a little bit, because I have seen wave elections in the past. I've seen wave elections when it's benefited Republicans. I've seen wave elections when it's benefited Democrats, and right now, this is shaping up as a wave election. I understand that there's some people who want to like put their fingers in their ears and go, no, 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 don't say those types of things. And, and it can't be because, you know, people don't, uh, are disappointed with the way Donald Trump has been governing. Well, that, that's part of the reality there. And you can pretend that's not the case, but, but it is. It's also, I think, a factor that maybe people who supported Donald Trump don't necessarily support Republican candidates, even if they are supported by President Trump. Plus, there is an enthusiasm gap that's out there. And I know people don't want to hear that either, but there is an enthusiasm gap that's there. That is that, and I mean, I've seen both sides of this. 2008, you had Democrats who were willing to run through brick walls to vote for Barack Obama. This is hope and change and all that stuff. 
And you saw the same thing that was true in, I don't know, 2010, where you had Republicans that were willing to run through walls to vote against Barack Obama's policies. And what that meant is they were going to vote against anybody that had a D in front of their name. And, and you've seen that. That's the way it works. This is shaping up to be a wave election unless Republicans can figure out a way to kind of change this around. So, yeah, we use the phrase wake up call. But now I I think that alarm should be going off. Now, there is something that could change that. And part of it is a diminishment of what I will call, again, the enthusiasm gap. And, you know, one of the things that could happen is that all of a sudden Republican voters in general could start getting more motivated to turn out, start willing being willing to run through brick walls. And one of the things that could do that is if you have, I don't know, prominent Democrats who decide that they are going to insult large chunks of the electorate. You know, we, we mentioned this yesterday. Over the weekend, Hillary Clinton, who, I, I mean, look, this country was just not that much into Hillary Clinton. That That's it. I mean, Hillary Clinton was probably the only person the Democrats could have nominated that would have lost to Donald Trump. That is just the reality. And Hillary Clinton has this history of, what I would describe as crazy conspiracy talk. You know, she's she's the one that coined the phrase right-wing conspiracy, and she's the one in September of 2016 who started talking about Trump supporters as being, at least half of the Trump supporters, as being a, a basket of deplorables. Well, she was in India over the weekend, and she kind of went back to that theme. Um, she talked about how, okay, she won she won the coasts which is where all the good stuff is happening, and it's where the people that are producing things for this country, you know, that's 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 where those voters. So it was those voters, those forward-thinking voters that voted for her. Um, I won places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, and moving forward. Make America Great Again was looking backwards. You know, you didn't like black people getting rights. You don't like women, you know, getting jobs. You don't want to see that American Indian succeeding more than you are. Whatever your problem is, I'm going to solve it. Um, she then went on to say that white women who voted against her, well, it wasn't because white women thought that maybe Donald Trump was superior or they didn't like her. It was because their husbands or their sons or their bosses wanted her to vote for Trump, and then those women followed suit. All right, well, that's kind of fighting words and insulting and all those different sorts of things. And um, after that came out, already that's been included in lots of fundraising mail. Interesting story in the Washington Post. Democrats all across the spectrum running as far as they can from Hillary Clinton on this issue because they recognize that there might be a wave election that is brewing. And one of their concerns is that the last thing we want to have happen is, you know, Hillary and her conspiracy theories and casting blame and insulting large chunks of the electorate. The last thing we need to do in 2018 is to allow Hillary to kind of go back into this basket of deplorables and irritate enough people that that enthusiasm gap disappears. Right now, one of the strongest things the Republicans have going for them, I think, is that Hillary Clinton is there out on the campaign trail, still bitter, still very, very unhappy, still trying to explain away why she lost. And you put all that together and 
Maybe that could be the game changer in 2018. Just saying. It's 216. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 219, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The Packers make a splash acquiring tight end Jimmy Graham while releasing longtime fan favorite Jordy Nelson. Many experts think uh, the general manager and the Packers aren't done yet. John and Melissa have the latest from Green Bay starting at 3 o'clock on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Yeah, that was, of course, the breaking news yesterday. Today is the first day of free agency. The Packers apparently... Um, and it's really it's it's almost like a trade. They they drop Jordy Nelson, um, dump his salary, and they pretty much use it to acquire tight end uh, Jimmy Graham. So that's you know that's you know one of the positive things that that's out there. Um, they sign the defensive tackle Wilkerson, so they're hoping that that's going to turn things around. Um, they still don't have cornerbacks which is part of the problem, and um, they are trying to shore up their defensive line. But without cornerbacks, you know, you do end up having a bit of a problem. So, you know, we'll we'll see how this all, th- all plays out. I'm with a lot of people when it comes to, you know, Jordy Nelson. I mean, what a great player. What a great guy. You know, he did stuff with WTMJ and was just a class act all around. There's no question about that. At the same time, um, it was one of those deals where in the NFL, and, and you know, Wayne Larrabee said it, I think, very well when he was doing the interview. He said, you know, Jordy, because of the injuries and because of age, he was starting to slow down. And he was very, very highly paid. You get to a certain point, I think, where, you know, you're making all this money and you end up being in a situation where you've got to... You've you got to make a decision, and the Packers obviously made a decision that they thought the money could be better spent in this particular fashion. And, and I find it difficult to fault them for that, although you're certainly going to miss, you know, Jordy Nelson and the different things that he could accomplish. And, you know, what a great player. He deserves, you know, all the different recognition that he could get. All right. When we had Ron Johnson on the program senator johnson came in and we did a 30-minute interview on friday afternoon and we talked about one of senator johnson's you know pet pieces of legislation something that he has been pushing for the longest time and that is what would be right what they call right to try legislation what this would do in in a nutshell and i'm going to simplify it a little bit but let us imagine you you are terminally ill or you have a spouse, a friend who is terminally ill. Let us imagine that there is a drug that is working its way through the approval process. For example, in the United States, there's very, very rigorous proposals and rigorous requirements you have to make before drugs hit the market. And in some cases, this could take years. Well, there are some people that maybe you don't have years. Maybe you're you're suffering from pancreatic cancer or liver cancer or whatever, and there's a drug that's out there that might, and I say might, maybe this is something that could could prolong your life. But the reality of this is, you know, you you're not going to last you're not going to probably last two or three years while it goes through the FDA approval. What this legislation would would do is it would allow people in those situations, as long as the drug manufacturer is okay with it, this would allow terminally ill patients who have no further options left the chance to, okay, try this, the right to try. So you could you know take these 
take the drugs. Um, again, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work, but you wouldn't have to wait for the full FDA approval under the situation. Again, we're talking about people who are terminally ill. Um, to me, this is an absolute no-brainer. It passed the Senate overwhelmingly. The president supports it because of procedural things. It needs um, needs to have 60% of votes in the House. It requires a two-thirds majority for passage just because of procedurally. And it failed um, because mostly Democrats united to kill this bill. Democrats decided that terminally ill people should not have the right to try to save themselves. Um, you know, one of the Democrats said, well, you know, we, we think that this could give people false hope. Okay, false hope and actually endanger people dying of incurable diseases. Well, all right, let, let me, let, let me stop here. Um, Having, again, lost a spouse to, you know, terminal cancer. I mean, you, you understand the realities of this situation. And I, I guess to me, I can't imagine anything that is more cruel than to say to someone who has an incurable illness, gee, we're not going to allow you to try to take this drug because, gee, it might give you false hope. Well, what, what's what's wrong with giving somebody hope? And you never know. The drug may, in fact, work. The, the bottom line is the reason this was shot down by the 140 people who voted against it is they don't want to give Republicans credit for passing something like this in an election year. That is what this is all about. It is politics with people's lives. And every one of the 140 members of the House of Representatives that voted against this, every single one of them should be ashamed of themselves. It is absolutely appalling. It is heartless and it is despicable. And yes, I use that word despicable that people who are terminally ill shouldn't have the right to try something which may extend their life. Now, will it extend their life? No, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Doesn't matter. The point is they don't even have the right to try to do that. 140 members of the House of Representatives voted against this. You needed two-thirds, so it came up just a little bit short. But I want to tell you, if you want to talk about you want to talk about playing politics and blood on your hands. This is a classic example of it. 140 people voted against this, and none of them, in my opinion, none of them have anything to be proud of. All right, back with more in just a minute. It's 226. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Uh, Giannis and the Bucks look for a little magic as they head to Orlando looking for their third win in a row. Ted Davis is on the call, and he gets you set for the tip-off with Buckshots. It starts at 540 this evening, so be sure to check that out. Yeah, getting a number of texts on this whole right-to-try legislation. I I can't imagine if you're terminally ill um, that there is such a thing as false hope. Yeah, what, what a dumb argument to make. Again, this is one of these... 
I, I understand that you need to have clinical trials and things like that, and everybody appreciates that. But if you're in a situation where, gee, it's going to be a five-year process to determine if this cancer drug gets approved, um, and you know you don't have five years, what is the harm in allowing somebody to take that drug to see if it may in fact work? I mean, what's the harm in that? To me, the answer would be there is absolutely none. Why not give it a chance? It's 2.34, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. Students from across the country walking out of their classrooms today for 17 minutes, one minute for each person killed in Parkland, Florida. Are schools in your neighborhood involved? For a full list of participating area schools, text the word WALKOUT to 414-799-1620. All right, interesting developments today. We have been talking for the last couple years about... The, the opioid crisis, we've had a number of people on, and it's been, as a former federal prosecutor handled narcotics prosecutions, it's been interesting to me to see these developments. There was a time, um, back, for example, when, when I started chasing drug dealers, you, you never, I mean, heroin, opioids was not an issue a- at all. And now, of course, it has made a huge comeback. And one of the things that we've learned about the opioid crisis is it, it does not discriminate. Um, it doesn't matter race. It doesn't matter economic group. It doesn't matter what part of the city, the county, the state you live in. It is a crisis. And what's been happening is a number of our elected officials and leaders have been trying to figure out, all right, h- how can we try to get this under control? Interestingly, today, Milwaukee County announced that it was filing a lawsuit in federal court against opioid manufacturers. And here to uh, discuss that in person is Milwaukee County Corporation Counsel Margaret Dawn. Margaret, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Okay. Talk a little bit about what happened today. So today, the county took the first step in in really trying to seek accountability from the nation and, and world's largest opioid manufacturers and wholesale distributors. And that first step was filing a multi-count federal uh, lawsuit seeking uh, a variety of damages, but inclusive of injunctive relief to stop some of the overflooding of our communities with these dangerous drugs. Okay, let's talk about that first. When, when you talk about over flooding the community what are you referring to so there's a variety of statistics um, for example today the county executive cited one that I think your listeners will intuitively understand indicates the sort of magnitude of the problem for every 10 residents of Milwaukee County 7.7 opioid prescriptions are written each year that's nearly one script per person It can't be that nearly every single resident of Milwaukee County is in need of an opioid prescription. So it indicates that some people are getting quite a number of prescriptions. And then when we look at the shipment of pills data that can be obtained now because of some of this litigation, you will see hundreds of millions of pills going into communities that have a relatively small anticipated demand. So there's certainly over-delivery, again, one of the reasons that we're suing the distributors, and there's some over-prescribing. Notably absent, and a question that I often receive are, why aren't you suing the doctors right. that write the prescriptions? 
I'm not particularly in the business of wasting my time as an attorney, which in turn means that taxpayer dollars are being wasted. There is culpability for the doctors that knowingly wrote prescriptions that were likely suspicious. But many of these doctors are frankly judgment proof. They do not have the assets within their practices, even if we were to go after them, to try to fund the sorts of redress that Milwaukee County is in need of. So we simply didn't bother suing them. As interesting enough, as as a as a problem of proof, how how do you? What's the theory as to how you establish this liability? Can't the farm, pharmaceutical companies simply say, "Hey, you know, we 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 are making this. There's X number of you know, we have these pills that are ordered from us. How are we supposed to know, you know, whether or not they're being overprescribed or not? For all we know, these are all going to people who have terminal cancer or something like that." Great question, and it's a complicated case to prove, but at its root, it's quite simple. And the simplicity of it, I think for most listeners, will draw some analogies to what we understood from the tobacco litigation, and that is that a dangerous product was manufactured and it was falsely marketed. What do I mean by that? Many of the pharmaceutical manufacturers that we sued today knowingly promulgated research which gave a false impression that these pills were safe for long-term use, that were not addictive, when in fact they were highly addictive. It's false advertising. It's fraud. It's intentional misrepresentation. And we also included two counts of RICO violations in, in our federal suit today. So, yes, there were doctors involved. Yes, the FDA approved these drugs. But what these companies did was lie about their addictive properties. And that is a wrong that we're going to seek some accountability for. But I think that's interesting. So it's, it's somewhat, I mean, it's not identical to the tobacco lawsuits, but it's sort of a similar theory that there was that false marketing. And in the case of tobacco, you could at least argue that the person who's smoking knows there might be health risks for a patient who's being prescribed opioids. You don't necessarily know that. Absolutely. And and I would assume that many of your listeners may recall back in the 90s, there was a push. Remember, drug companies started directly marketing to patients. And there was a push to tell physicians and patients that there was this epidemic of untreated pain. And they effectively got the medical community and patients to believe that when, in fact, these drugs were quite dangerous. And many patients began with pill prescriptions that they thought were perfectly safe, that didn't pose any risks of addiction to them because the person that gave them that prescription was their well-known and trusted physician. Again, when you promulgate false information with a profit-making motive, I think it's incumbent upon my office and offices like mine across the country to seek accountability from those who knowingly lied. We're talking to Margaret Dawn, who's the Milwaukee County Corporation Counsel, about a federal lawsuit filed against various opioid manufacturers uh, today in federal court. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what you hope to accomplish with the lawsuit. First of all, you, you mentioned the term injunctive relief what what sort of injunctive relief are you looking for? Certainly. Um, I think first and foremost, we have to look at the volumes of pills coming into communities. And so there need to be some well-informed, medically expert um, restrictions on 
the size of the dosages that are prescribed and the volumes of prescriptions that are written. So how we go about that, either from a regulatory framework, which I don't believe will ultimately be successful, or by asking the pharmaceutical wholesale manufacturers to come to a table and talk to us about common sense limits that they will agree to and potentially other tracking so that we have an idea of where we might be seeing a need for additional education and or treatment. So these need to be um, common sense restrictions that are informed by what we understand from addiction and medical experts. Now, in addition to the injunctive relief, there's also a request for for monetary damages as well, correct? Yes. Right. Now, how's that going to work out? Uh, well, I hope with a really big check, Jeff. Um, but, but in all seriousness, let me describe, um, the sorts of damages that we're talking about seeking in, in our suit. First of all, it's compensatory, uh, damages for past and future costs to stop the ongoing public nuisance that's being created through this epidemic. We're talking about funding a special set aside account for the purposes of trying to abate that. What are the sorts of, uh, abate the epidemic? What are the sorts of things that we could use that sort of set-aside account for? Additional treatment beds, additional preventative educational campaigns, public service announcements, um, counseling, various different in and outpatient rehabilitation services, treatment of infants that are now being born with opioid-related opioid medical conditions. And one of the most tragic results of this that is a bit different from tobacco is that when people became ill from tobacco, that typically took a long time. Right. And for the most part, they harmed themselves. So the harm and the damages for tobacco were more easily estimable. Here, these are nearly inestimable damages. Now, certainly we're going to hire economic experts and we're going to attempt to do those estimates. But what do I mean by that? These are drugs that can claim their victims quickly and definitively. Folks that end up incapacitated out of work and folks that when they have children, those children then need other social service support systems, potentially foster care, etc. So that is an example of the widespread domino effect throughout our communities that incur costs that vastly outstrip what we saw with big tobacco. Again, we're going to hire some of the best economists in the nation to help us estimate that. But it truly um, is a, a swift and acute killer and incapacitator of our community members that then in turn has all sorts of waterfall or domino effects that have really serious cost consequences and social services consequences. Well, you know, Mark, one of the things that I've just been stunned by is, I mean, the estimates are approximately 400 people in Milwaukee County alone last year, 400 people died of drug-related situations, overdose, etc., and the vast majority of that was opioids. And 400 people, that's staggering. Yeah, it it really is um, a, a shocking volume. And in Wisconsin, um, we have not hit the bottom yet. Um, the statistics that are being measured, one of which I quoted at our press conference today, it, are demonstrating that the epidemic is accelerating here in Wisconsin and in Milwaukee County. The CDC most recent statistic measuring the period of June of 2016 to September of 2017 said that the 
ER admits that were related to opioid overdoses in the state of Wisconsin increased by 109%. That's over a doubling in a 13-month period, whereas the national average was around 30%. So unfortunately, here yet again is another metric where Wisconsin is among the tops and not in a good way. This Today is is a first step. Milwaukee County filing the lawsuit. Um, it, it sounds like to me there's the potential that this this isn't something that's going to be resolved in six months or a year or, or two years in all likelihood, right? Um, indeed. And had you asked me that question a month and a half ago, I would have said I'd give this a ninety percent certainty. We're we're in it for a number of years. However. There is what is called multi-district litigation, and what that is for your listeners that may not be familiar with that term is that when a number of very similar, although not identical, lawsuits are filed across the country, and now there are over a thousand of these sorts of lawsuits filed across the country and filed in federal court, instead of having hundreds of judges across the country differently potentially deciding very similar both legal and other procedural questions, they centralize all of that litigation in one federal court. And that happened in December. So we have a coordinated multi-district litigation that's um, moving forward in the Northern District of Ohio. And what that judge has came out, come out recently and publicly said is we're going to talk about settlement first. That he doesn't want to see years of lawyers racking up fees and arguing over discovery and all sorts of satellite skirmishes. He wants to get to the heart of the issue. I applaud him. That will be an uphill battle. So I can't tell you exactly Mm -hmm. whether or not this may be a shorter duration or a longer one. I can tell you who likely will be the determining factor in that calculus and it's not the plaintiffs. It will be the defendants and Big their farmer. lawyers. Yeah. That's right. Will you come to the table meaningfully and actually talk real turkey about trying to redress some of the, their wrongdoings? And so I, you know, I call upon them, and I think uh, similarly situated plaintiffs' counsels throughout the country will call upon them to not let lawyers do what lawyers sometimes do, and that's obfuscate and distract from the real issues. Of course, myself and my co-counsel <laughs> don't ever do that, but to really get to the heart of the matter as quickly as possible, because our communities are in need. Margaret Dawn, Milwaukee County Corporation Counsel, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Appreciate thanks so it. much, Jeff. We'll take a quick break. Be back with much more in just a minute. It's 248. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 252, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Appreciate Margaret Dawn, who's a Milwaukee County Corporation Counsel, joining me to discuss this lawsuit. Um, one, one of the questions I, I've already gotten a couple of texts from people, if, and the question is, if you recover damages, um, can individuals get some dough back? And the answer to that is no, that's not the purpose of this lawsuit. Um, so, for example, if you had, uh, I don't know, you, you lost someone, you lost a spouse, you lost a child because of um, uh, opioid abuse, you know, will, will there be pools of money as a result of this lawsuit? The answer is no. When they're talking about economic damages, it's the cost to the county, so it's an overall benefit. Um, you know, it, it is amazing to me. I, I, I'm just always struck by, by the number of, of deaths. And I'm, 
I'm struck by how heroin has made such a resurgence in this and in other communities all across the country. And a lot of it does tie back to opioids. Um, you know, Brad Schimmel, who's going to be one of our guests at Insight, you know, 2018, last year, you know, we, we spent the entire segment with him talking about the opioid problem and about how Wisconsin is trying to address it, as are other states. And it's one of these situations where a, a lot of people, a lot of kids in particular, raid their parents' medicine cabinets. You know, mom or dad might have the opioids. They're not paying attention to it. The kids start taking those. They get hooked on it. Then the prescriptions dry up. So then they end up, you know, turning to, you know, other things like heroin to try to get their highs and they end up um, just in, they end up dead. It's it is a very, very scary thing. And I, I am intrigued by this lawsuit, the, the notion that for years and years, just as tobacco manufacturers try to tell the public that, you know, cigarette smoking is not harmful. If you if you can establish that the opioid manufacturers were essentially taking the same position in effort to peddle the stuff. And look, I, I there is a role. There is a role for for opioids. There, there's no question about it. I mean, if you have somebody who's suffering from terminal cancer and is in pain, well, OK, that that's the situation. But it is the overprescription that you have. And it's the use of opioids over a long period of time for people who aren't the terminal cancer patients, for example. And so uh, it, this is this is the start of this lawsuit. And I think it'll be fascinating to follow this through the court system. And I don't expect that there's going to be any resolution, you know, today, tomorrow, you know, in the next few weeks. But it is part of multi-district uh, litigation. And um, certainly if... They can if they can make the case that they allege, it would seem to me that they're you know these drug companies perhaps do have some liability. All right, it's two fifty four. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure and Melissa Barkley and Greg Matzik have on their plates for Wisconsin's afternoon news. Please stick around. This is Jeff Wagner.